Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman here with my lovely sister, Jennifer White. Yay, I'm here. Today... We have an author on, so very exciting. We tried very hard for many, for a long, long, long time to get her on. And finally, we did have some logistics issues. Yeah. (laughs) So before we start, Jen, do you have a favorite book of all times or a life-changing book? (gasps) I mean, it's hard to say life-changing. I I mean, favorite of all time, like as a kid, I read the entire Wizard of Oz series which most people think that The Wizard of Oz is one book, but actually it is a lot of books. Um, and I really loved those. I would not call them life-changing. Uh, I really like anything by Barbara Kingsolver. So The Poisonwood Bible was a really big one for me. Um, yeah, and she actually just put something out recently and I've been, I, I picked it picked it up and started reading it and it's very much the same style. So I'm really excited about, about having a chance to dive into that. What about you? I don't know that I have one. I definitely have distinct memories of other people saying their lives were changed. So I had a really good friend in college. Um, I absolutely loved. And uh, I moved back. So I moved away from the Bay Area and then I moved back. And we were, I was so excited to reconnect and hang out with her again. And I'd probably only been back a couple months when she's like, hey, I have to tell you, I read this book. It changed my life. I'm now moving back to Bulgaria. And I was like, what? Whoa. And I was like, no, what? So I'm actually like really mad at uh, The Alchemist. I really like blame that book for, <laughs> for taking wow. my friend. Oh my God. And then I, right? I read it. And I was like, mm, okay, I don't know. but um, Right. You're like, eh, okay, she got something out of it different than I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have a favorite podcast right now, which uh, what? so okay. hopefully everyone's is ours. But This I, one, right? Yeah, oh, this wait. one. No, I can't stand listening to myself. Learn to form a <laughs> sentence. Learn. I, I will practice. Uh, but no, The Dream is so good. I'm really, really enjoying it. Uh, and it partially might have to do with my own internal struggle with MLMs, with multi-level marketing companies, which is like your doTERRA oils and your uh my current favorite color street nail nail polish strips where i like love them but like the model like creeps me out and anyway so yeah uh in the podcast they really dig into mlms and i've been very much enjoying it cool but uh, but we have to take, we, we have to loop that back around to books yes. though because we are talking to an author today. Yes, back to books. <laughs> Not which everyone should still read books aside from listening to our podcast. And we have a great author on today uh, with, of course, a book that ties into assisted reproductive technology and all of her profound and fascinating research in the area, as well as telling some really good stories um, that are true, true to life stories that people have gone through. Welcome Jacqueline Morose to the show, the author of the fasting, incredibly well-researched book, Seeds. So welcome, Jacqueline. Thank you for having me. Uh, I am very interested and excited to talk about your book. Before we dive in, we're hoping to get a little background on you. So tell us, uh, where are you from and what do you do, aside from writing many books? <laughs> um, I live in Montclair, New Jersey, and I'm actually a Jersey girl, born here. Um, And I'm a freelance writer. I write for the New York Times Science and Health section. And I also run a uh, book festival. 
That is exciting. I don't even know what a book festival is. What is what does that look like? It's like a film festival. We have authors come. And we have over a hundred authors hmm. come. We'll have different panels going on, and it's like a one day, big one day awesome. festival. So it's like one day of like book readings and things like that, and like getting to meet. Yep. Oh. Mm-hmm. Panel discussions. Oh, yeah. When's the next one? If anyone wants to go to a book fair. It's actually coming oh, up. It's March 28th. Oh. If you have a link or website, we'll link to it in the, yeah. with the description of the podcast. Great. Okay. Well, aside from that, you tell us about this book that you that we're so interested in as a podcast focus on assisted reproductive technology issues and how you chose to write it. So I have a younger sister. I have I have three kids of my own, three boys, and I was very fortunate that I did not have fertility issues, but... Uh, my younger sister was trying to get pregnant. She was um, on her own using um, donor sperm. So I sort of helped her with the whole process, like choosing the sperm, and which was fascinating. Yeah. Because um, it's like match.com, right? Tell us were you like, about looking that. At, like, did yeah. you like, sit down and look at profiles? Like, what exactly. were you guys like? What was that like? Right. Do you want the tall one or the taller guy? <laughs> They're all tall, and there's so right? many, so many criteria. Did you were you like trying yeah, to persuade was, her of like, no, don't worry about height, worry about you know intelligence, or <laughs> how did how did that go? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I'm trying to remember, you know, you're kind of weighing different things against the other, like a graduate degree or, um, the, you know, the the coloring you might be looking for. You most people try to match the coloring to yourself, right, or your spouse uh, so that they look like your child so that was really interesting and um while she was doing the eyewise uh she was on a website i think it was single mothers by choice and she was on a like a chat group and a mother wrote in and she said oh my god i just found out that my daughter has 75 half siblings. Wow. And wow. I'm freaking out yeah. right now. Oh. You know, has anybody heard anything about this? So my sister told me this. And, and I was like, choose, wow, that is crazy. Two five one, whatever it was. Great like, oh, that's right. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Had your sister thought about that at all? No, 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 never. No, no. Um, so I was I was like, but it's a great story. So uh, I'm a journalist. And so I started looking into it. And I ended up finding Wendy Kramer from the Donor Sibling Registry. You probably know who's on our podcast. Me- dear, dear listeners, go back and go back and listen to Wendy Kramer. Who <laughs> has a new book coming out? Okay, we inter- we interviewed her just a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Wendy said, "Well, actually, that number is kind of low now because we have a donor with 150 children." Wow. Right? So I was like, that's a great story. So I told my editor at the Times and he said, yeah, go for it. So I started looking into it. and So did it start as like a news article story, not as a book article? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it was an article. Was that before okay. or after the movie Delivery Man? Is Delivery Man based on your article? No, it's not. The Vince Vaughn movie? Yes, which actually I think is based on a Canadian movie similar yes. to it. Called like Starbuck, I think. Oh yes, good, yeah. Right. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> she knows her pop culture. Yeah. <laughs> well, people talk to me about it all the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so was your your article was before the movie or after? 
think it was before. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe not before the the Canadian movie. I'm not sure. I didn't know about it. <laughs> sure. I don't want to take credit. Anyway, I wrote the article. By the way, just a side note, my sister was not able to get pregnant and ended up adopting a, a little girl. She's now Aww. happy ending. Now seven. Seven and a half. Good for a happy ending. Yay, um, happy ending. So I wrote the article and it was called One Donor, 150 Offspring. And actually, Wendy Kramer's son is Wendy's in it and her son Ryan is in that article too. And there's a photograph of him with it. And it was just like totally but to took clar- off. To clarify, not one of the 150 because he his, no, not his one bio day. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this group is smaller, yeah. The article was very popular. I was interviewed on like t- the Today Show, and it was picked up all over the world, really. And so I wrote a couple more articles after that, like one about how um, people are were inheriting um, rare genetic diseases from their sperm donors. When that first, sorry, I just say, when that first, I just don't want to lose track of this one. But when that first article came out, and you said you got a lot of attention for it. Was it mostly? Was it positive? Was it negative attention? What? What was the sentiment you were hearing? I don't think it was really negative. It was um, just a sort of fascination. Interesting. Sorry, so I interrupted you. I say so, but then you went on to, to talk about other other related things. Yeah, I wrote a few a few like re- yeah, I wrote a couple more related articles, um, and then uh, people kept saying to me, "Oh, that's so fascinating. You know, you should turn it into a book." So, of course sounded like a great idea <laughs> and I pitched it and I got an agent and then um yeah became a book a few years later so how does the process of writing a book like that I was to say you say a few years later but how did that process look for you like did you just travel the country I mean I I can be very honest that I don't know much about the process of writing a book I know it takes a long time and I know it takes a ton of effort and and research but did you physically go to places how how did that how did you collect all the, the stories that you, you ended up with? Um, I took about a, like a little over a year, I guess. And well, they only gave me, they give you a year. Ah. So I could <laughs> do more time, but you know, and yeah, it was, it was actually a little bit difficult to figure out how to write the book, um, how to kind of divide it up. But then I finally decided I would tell like the stories of three different people. So I have, um, sperm donor, a very kind of early sperm donor from, I think he's from the 60s or 70s, um, who ended up finding his, two of his donor children. Um, and he's in Utah. So I did go out and visit him and I met one of the daughters. I say, I found that story really fascinating. The, the difference in their reactions to him. Yeah. I know. That was really fascinating. And he was very kind to kind of open himself up to me. And I think it was a little bit difficult for him after the book came out because they were, the girls were very honest with me about like he was very, oh. like he wanted more of a relationship with them than they wanted with him. Yeah. Um, but he Yeah. Was, so that's, it was probably hard for him to go back and read that and see that. Yeah. I think so. That's different. Um, yeah. And, but I thought it was just fascinating the way, because I think a lot of times people are so worried that donor children are going to want to have like 
the father they never had. Whereas I think most of the people that I have interviewed who are donor conceived just really want to like meet their biological father and see what they look like, but they don't really want a relationship because they already have either a parent, a mother, you know, or parents. Right. Did you find any exceptions to that rule? Like that there was somebody who was like pining to have a, you know, find, find their daddy kind of thing. Um, trying to remember like so many people I've interviewed. No. <laughs> um, but what I was just going to say is we we've <laughs> had, I mean, we've had an exception to that on the podcast with, Oh, you did. Well, in a situation that was, you know, is incredibly famous and she's, you know, incredibly strong woman, this, uh, Eve Wiley in Texas. Oh yeah. I know. So, Eve, she, yeah. so she met her donor after her, you know, her mother's husband who, you know, her father had raised her, had passed and established, you know, a really healthy re- relationship. And it sounds like that was very equal that they enjoyed having a relationship together, of course, which, you know, a father child relationship that then of course was rocked by the news. that, In fact, he wasn't her genetic parent, which right. is a crazy I twist. Wrote so. about, I wrote about her for the time. Oh, did you? Yes. She's yeah. great. Yeah, she is great. So um, another podcast to go back and listen to dear listeners. Right. <laughs> Um, but what I was just going to say is that in fact, I think I have that more of the other kids where the donor, the biological father is kind of like, Hey, this is pretty cool. I want, I have a child. Let's have a relationship. And then the, the child yeah. is sort of like, kids are like yeah, no, I just wanted so to much. meet you. Yeah. Don't really want to, you know? So anyway, I mean, it goes both ways, but, um, that was kind of the but case. Which is him. informative because I feel like a lot of donors, sorry, um, I feel like a lot of donors are scared that their, you know, genetically connected children will be like wanting something from them that they don't have the ability to provide. And it's interesting that you didn't really find that, that actually it was just like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Thanks. Yeah, totally, definitely. Um, and then I interviewed Susanna Wall, who is one of the mothers from the group of 150 children. And she had a great story. She was very open with me as well. She has two children from the donor who with 150 children. And um, she and her two kids had, like, the previous summer taken a cross-country trip to meet as many of their the kids' half-siblings as they could. So that was kind of cool. Yes. Um, and fascinating. And then the third person was Ryan Kramer, Wendy Kramer's son, because he is considered to be the first uh, donor-conceived child to find his anonymous sperm donor um, online by some detective work. So, uh, you know, and I I don't want to ever give away too much of a book because, you know, (laughs) know, people need to go buy it, right? And go read it themselves. Right. How, what... Tell me one of the more shocking things that you found out about the history of fertility or sperm donate, donation. Which just to back up is a really unique aspect of your book that you you don't just tell a few stories. You really dig into history. I think um, people might be interested in reading the book will find very interesting. So sorry. Okay. Now go into those stories. It was fascinating to find out that the first known case of artificial insemination was actually 1790 by a Scottish doctor named Dr. John Hunter, who had been experimenting on silkworms. Um, and he, a couple came in and the wife couldn't get pregnant and he figured out that the husband had an issue that made it hard for the sperm to come out. So he took the sperm and, you know, artificially inseminated it in the wife and 
lo and behold, she was pregnant. So, um, but the shocking, I think Ellen and I, ha- and I had emailed about the um, the experiments on uh, black slave women by Dr. Marion Sims. They're absolutely horrific the, to, to read about. In the mid-1800s, yeah. And um, they're very, dis- in fact, when you called me, I was read- just reading up on it again, and it was so disturbing that <laughs> I was kind of shocked when the... Do you mind talking a little bit, do you mind talking a little bit about that, just so that people know kind of what you're alluding to, and then, of course, they can go look at your book for further information about it? Right. Um yeah, so he was a doctor in the South. He had moved to, um, I think it was Alabama, because I was just reading. the first. His first two patients died. And so he moved to a, a different town. And at the time, doctors didn't really have very much training. So he ended up getting work through plantation owners helping um, with slaves' health problems because for the owners, it was a way to keep their investment, you know, intact. Right, right. And so he's known as the father of modern gynecology, um, and he invented the speculum, and he also helped... um, figure out a way to um, repair fistulas, which is a horrible condition that some women get when, in childbirth and they become incontinent. And it's very painful. And so, but what he did was he experimented on female black slaves and without anesthesia. Oh. Yeah. Many of them. And he, he did end up figuring out a way to um, fix the issue. You're like, that's great, but your methods are really bad. Yeah. Exactly. And there are actually statues of him around the country. Wow. Just because of being the the father of gynecology, not glossing glossing over the the bad parts, huh? Exactly. Yeah. He founded the Women's Hospital in New York City, the first hospital for women in the United States, which is now known as Mount Sinai. Ah, Yes. Yes. Everybody knows Mount Sinai. Yeah. Interesting. Exactly. Yep. And there was a big statue. There was a statue of him in New York Central Park, which was removed in 2018, actually. Oh. Wow. So recent. Yeah. So a lovely lovely guy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're like, "Mm, I'm not a biggest fan. (laughs) So what are some of your favorite stories from the book? I love some of the, um, like the accidental meeting stories. Yes. Those yes. are great. I, I so love the sisters that met each other at camp, basically. Right. Yeah. So there was a girl named Zoe who was, I think she was 12 or 13, and she went to summer camp, sleepaway camp. And she met this girl, and they became best friends. And the girl kept saying to her, you are so much like my best friend at home. You have to meet her. And then um, she, they, she figured out that Zoe and her friend – had both been donor conceived. So when, when her friend got home, she called Zoe, she called both friends and said, okay, give me your donor number. <laughs> and so she was like a connector and um, figured out that they were indeed half sisters. That's so amazing. Zoe came and to her house and met her, met her half sister. And there was like this incredible, you know, meeting where they looked so much alike and the mothers met. Were they, they even, ge- were they geographically close to each other? Like, uh, yeah, they were in San Francisco. Yeah. 
Okay. So, so if like you think about it, yeah. yeah, there are a lot of lesbians in San Francisco. So there are a lot of donor-conceived children there. Right. Okay. Um, so Zoe actually had been taught by her mother to memorize her donor-conceived number in case she ever met a boy. Ah, oh, that is hilarious. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Very smart, though. Right. So she already knew it So when she found the other number. Um, but the story gets even stranger because the, her, Zoe's mother just accidentally found her sperm donor on Wendy Kramer's website one day. Yeah, it was a real strange coincidence. Um, like she, he wrote something and she sort of recognized it and thought it sounded like her sperm donor because he'd written some things that she read. Like similar writing style or something, yeah. Yeah, and she she reached out to him and, and she was right and it was him. Wow. And he was an artist, this guy Randy, who lived in San Francisco and had been mar- was married and had a, two kids, I think. And so she said, you know, would you meet me? And they met. And he ended up meeting Zoe, I think, a couple of years later. But oh, so he, he met Zoe and they kept in touch, but he didn't tell his wife because he thought she might not be happy with the whole situation. And so... But he would tell Zoe, like, oh, send me pictures of yourself every now and then one day. So one day he's kind of looking at a picture of Zoe on his computer and his young son walks by and sees the picture. And he says, Dad, why do you have a picture of my camp counselor on your computer? (laughs) (laughs) That was bizarre. Um, Wow. Yeah. Such a small world. Right. But then Randy's... um, Marriage ended up falling apart, partly because of the secret that he had kept. Like she found the wife found no. out, and it was actually uh, it was a case where he sort of wanted more of a relationship with Zoe than she was ready for at the time. That was a few years ago. Got it. Got it. Do you keep in touch with all these people still? Uh, not really. Just so, like Susanna, I keep in touch with sometimes, but. Not that many people. And then the, I really like the story of Michael Rubino, who is a, an artist in California who was a sperm donor. And a couple of his donor-conceived kids, the, the mothers, found him. And he had been married. Um, this is kind of a interesting, I think, that seems like quite a few sperm donors end up not having I noticed that. Kind of children on their own. I noticed that in yeah. your book. I was really fascinated by that as I was reading it. Yeah, I kind of, like, I've heard quite a few cases of this. Um, and so he'd been married, his wife couldn't have kids, so he didn't have children of his own. So when these kids came into his life, he just welcomed them, you know, and he was really thrilled to meet them. And they just, he had these lovely relationships with his biological children. He would, like, paint their portraits, and they would come and stay with him. I think he lived near L.A., and then there was one mother of one of his biological sons who lived, I think she lived in San Diego, and she moved to L.A., and he became very close with this son. And she had this sort of uh, situation, like a, she had to move, basically. And so he said, well, why don't you move in with me? And um, it was not a romantic relationship. They just, she and the son lived with him. Wow. <laughs> and they both raised their son together. It's amazing. Very interesting. Yeah. So like he actually took on a parent role, basically, even though that was not the original intent. Exactly. 
Yeah, they were very close. He was an artist, so he was able to, and, and the mother worked, so he was able to, like, pick the boy up after school and hang out with him and take him to the beach and, you know, help raise him. So, yeah, it's very touching. Are there any stories that didn't make the cut that are still equally interesting <laughs> Directors that you're willing to share? <laughs> Oh, I know the director's it. cut. Oh, yeah. Okay, I have to show the spot on that one. Yeah. <laughs> what issues did this bring up for you? I mean, obviously, as you start to dig into this, it starts to bring up things that you know. There's there's positives. There's these great stories, right? But then there's also some things that can start to be concerning and scary. What what issues did you really see the more you dug into these stories? Well. Definitely the, the secrecy that surrounds sperm donation, especially on the part of the sperm banks, which is to their advantage. Um, they don't want the sperm donors to know how many, you know, uh, biological children they have, because then they might get angry or upset and, you know, or stop donating. Um, and, yeah, I think the the secrecy and also allowing sperm donors to have so many children and the possibility of, the, you know, there's so many issues like um, accidental incest, yeah. of course, but there's also, you know, rare inherited genetic diseases that these kids are getting, um, which are really scary. Right. I'm actually working on a, I have a story that should be running in the Times, in the New York Times soon, um, which is about a uh, serial sperm donor in the Netherlands who is going around to different European countries um, and Scandinavian countries and um, donating sperm. And I was contacted by some uh, donor-conceived organization in the Netherlands by somebody who, and they believe that he could have between 500 and 1,000 children. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just going to sit here and just say wow a few more times. That's, <laughs> oh my God. And spread just across Europe and, and the Netherlands. All, and all over Europe. Mm-hmm. And he's doing it online. He does it through social media. That's interesting. We've definitely talked to somebody in the past who seems to think that, you know, that, that he, he does it online too, basically, <laughs> is what it is. So not going through a bank. So there's no way to regulate is what it really comes no, down to in that situation. No, no regulation. Yeah. And there's no regulation in, you know, in Europe. Um, did you get a chance to talk to any of the the sperm banks or anything like that and, and really trying to get their perspective on on you know, on not telling donors and why they don't do those things. I did. I interviewed um, one of the founders of uh, California Cryobank, and I went to one of their um, one of their clinics near Stanford, which, as you can imagine, they're they're always near, you know, big college university. Yeah, yeah, towns. Um, and that was so interesting because I went in, I got to see where they store the sperm and how they, you know extracted and um i talked to the manager there and she said you know we just had our first birth from a 25 year old sperm wow isn't that great (laughs) and i thought well that's kind of you know troubling i say because the donor know their sperm is still out there yeah (laughs) yeah and i've written stories about 
sperm that was very old and had never been tested for some diseases. In fact, there was a child I wrote about who ended up getting cystic fibrosis because the sperm donor had never been tested for it. And it was very old sperm. So, um, yeah. Right. That was before they did. I mean, they had the capability to do any of those things. So did they just, did, did they, when you talk to the sperm banks, did they justify why they're willing to spread that far? Or did they say that they don't do that? I mean, what, what was their thought process surrounding all of those, those concerns that you had? They say that in, in terms of how many children. How many children and not letting the donors know how many children are born. Yeah. Uh, they did talk about not letting the donors know, but they, they go by the, um, the professional guidelines by the, it's the ASRM, mm-hmm. and which is goes by population, hundred thousand, something like that, um, in population. But so, but they can easily get around that because they sell it all over the world. They sell it all over the United States the sperm. They can right. ship it anywhere. Also, how do they keep track? Do they require? I was going to say they don't recipients to report. They ask them to report. I was going to say I. I move so much, you know, like asking me to report yeah. where my child was born has nothing to do with the other 11 places no. I've lived in the meantime. <laughs> so, Right. No, a lot, a lot of people don't report. It's impossible. I mean, there have been moves to, to try and have um, like a registry for donors and for the children to keep track of all of this. But I think there's so many fears about privacy concerns that it well, just hasn't and- happened. I mean, the interesting thing now, and I mean, obviously, since you touched about this, this is how people figure these things out a lot of the time is privacy and anonymity are going away. You know, it's not exactly <laughs> it's not Everybody a thing anymore said, in the day of 23 right. and me. No, that's for sure. Definitely. Did the sperm bank seem concerned about that when you talked to them? They have I mean, said, or did, did yeah. You? They, I talked to one recently and, and they said, yeah, we, we understand that. We can't really guarantee anonymity anymore. They, they'll still do it. Because they want the donors, they'll still guarantee it. But but the donors should know by now that that is, can't be guaranteed. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm letting my brain kind of wrestle on that. I'm like, if you guarantee it, but say that the donors should know that, I was going to say. <laughs> it seems like such a backward statement to exactly. make that on that. Um, but on the other side, I know there's a big movement towards open donation and, and people wanting to know if that's possible. I mean, yeah, especially actually, from the recipient side. It's more popular. It's getting more popular now um, on both sides. More, you know, more um, clients are asking for open donors and more donors are agreeing to do it as well. So it's starting to, I think it's actually starting to outweigh Probably the anonymous. Probably partially donors. in response to the reality that it's not, it's not really anonymous anyway, right? Exactly. Right. Some donors should do their homework mm-hmm. <laughs> before they donate. Any donors should do their homework. Yeah, hopefully. But yeah. After doing all this research and finding these kind of, you know, somewhat concerning stories to say the least, do you, what are your feelings about the industry in general, are they all negative? Do you have some positive or some hope? What do you, what do you feel after going through all this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in in some ways there's more hope. Um, there is one. Oh, the Sperm Bank of California, yeah, in Berkeley, in Berkeley is the only. Um, I think the only not for profit 
sperm bank in the country. They only use open donors. They try to connect the donors with the children, the families. Um, it started by women, I think by women doctors. Um, so that is considered a great sperm bank to work with. Eth- you know, ethical, an ethical sperm bank. <laughs> it's almost like an oxymoron. Yeah, so the fact that more donors are choosing to become known, I think, is very helpful. And um, I think the technology for infertile people to have children is getting better. Um, egg freezing is becoming more um, higher success rates for that, for having children from frozen eggs, which was quite low years ago. And more companies are opting to pay for uh, infertility treatments as well for women, especially I know like the, the tech industry is probably because they just want to keep their <laughs> people working forever. Oh, so cynical. Maybe they just want to help them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you written on egg freezing much? I feel like that's a pretty big area that's growing now and a yeah. bit controversial. Um, I haven't written that much, but um, it's just a, like, there's a plethora of stories in this field mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. So, um, so many stories. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there and there's another story that I was interested in writing about a sperm donor who's suing the sperm bank. Did you hear about that? For some crazy amount. Like yeah, in in Oregon, the one that he, yeah. they, they promised him, I think, only five times or 10, I forget, and that they promised it wouldn't be near him. And suddenly he has 17 children, at least local to him, that his own right. kids, I think, went to social engagements with like it was definitely some overlap of how close they were is it that one that you're talking about yeah exactly yeah just will be interesting to see how that how that plays how out plays out definitely yeah i say there's definitely a couple sperm donor related litigations ongoing at the moment that that are fascinating in in this world not sure if we can bring up the any of the other right. ones but <laughs> yeah. yeah he's in for five million dollars I mean, we'll just go ahead and bring it up because I think it'll air. Be, it may air before this episode. We'll see. I was saying, so I've, been, I've been tapping yeah, around it. I know. <laughs> I know. The Danielle Teuscher case, which is just absolutely fascinating, where a woman who had a donor conceived child did a DNA test, and that DNA test happened to pop up the genetic rela- related. Um, individual to the sperm donor and it said open to communication and they sent some kind of like minor communication like we're out here and um i guess she must have no- the person must have notified the donor who notified the sperm bank who then sent a you know demand letter for twenty thousand dollars that they had breached the contract and took away her remaining vials and now she has a lawsuit against them yeah so that I has been very too. interesting yeah. to you? see how that yeah. i really that yeah what happened is she actually she contacted the sperm donor's mother. Yes, it was the mother that was on the yeah. DNA, 23 and me, right? Yeah, and then she told the son, like, what, what's going on? He probably hadn't told the mother anything. Right, right. And uh, so he kind of freaked out about that. Yeah, that was a sad story, though. Yeah. I feel like we can't stop on a sad note. Tell, do you have any <laughs> happy stories? You I say happy stories. our listeners oh, with um, joy and... Well, there are more. There's more legislation happening. Eve Wiley has been in touch with me, um, so that I think is fascinating. There's more. More states are looking to legislate fertility fraud. Mm-hmm. Because it's not clearly illegal at the moment for a doctor have to have used his sperm instead of a donor's, which is 
kind of um, mind blowing to think that that, you know, it just seems so obviously illegal, but no. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So hope for a positive change for our laws to catch up with the situation (laughs) and make sure that everyone is actually makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Being good players in this, that is, that is positive. Definitely. So we know we have more interesting and fascinating articles to watch for from you. Um, So everyone keep an eye on for Jacqueline Rose and um, her articles in the New York Times and other publications you may appear in, as well as uh, find your book, Scattered Seeds. Where where can we find that? I mean, I have a copy, but where, where can anybody else find Amazon. it? On Amazon. Giving off on Amazon. Of course, everything's on Amazon. Yeah. Everything is on Amazon. That is true. I say, I feel like I just asked a stupid question. <laughs> well, thank you for writing this. I think it's so well-written and really well-researched and just a f- absolutely fascinating and interesting read, even for those who aren't, you know, so deep in this world like we are that just to kind of get a sense of all the really amazing stories there are. Yeah, really compelling read. I, I hi- highly recommend from me. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both so much. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you to Jacqueline Rose for joining us and for writing such a really fascinating book that I think everyone will enjoy, even if this isn't you know, what you eat, breathe, and drink every day, the assisted reproductive technology. I think it's a really good, um, well-written. It was, actually. It was really, really interesting, really good story. She wove them in, in a great narrative. So it was, it, was, it was a fun read. So we'll be keeping an eye out for your articles and your next book to come and all of it. So thank you. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of writing, if anybody wants to write us an email, (laughs) (laughs) we do love that. Um, If you are not as prone to the writing, just click the stars, you know, on the click the stars also on the reviews on iTunes. We we do like that. Uh, So yeah, so so reach out in any way, shape, or form. Send us smoke signals. We 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 enjoy those things. So, Um, but yeah, so huge thank you as always to our team, uh, Amanda. Ashley, Lexi, Tyler, shaking it up, doing a different order this time. Um, and to Chris at Work at Bird Studios, who always makes us sound fabulous. And we really appreciate him. So, and thank you again to everybody who listens. We appreciate that you're here with us. Mm-hmm.